welcome to Show and Tell with Biggins. This is the podcast where I invite one of my friends to show off three things that tell a story from their lives. I've got all sorts of things in my house and each of them have their own special place in my heart. So in this podcast, I'll ask my guests to show off their most prized possessions and take me through the stories of why they mean so much. So, without any further delay, it's time to welcome our next show and teller, Giles Brandon. Giles Brandon is one of those people who's tried their hand at everything and has made a good go of pretty much all of it. He's an author, broadcaster, podcaster, entertainer and former MP. His latest book is called Odd Boy Out and is available at all good bookshops on the 16th of September. Charles, how are you, my dear? I'm so well. I'm so happy. I'm so exhausted. You must be. You're never off television. I'm often on television, but I'm also off on tour because I have a, a new book out. I, I first wrote a, a book, as you can see, because you can see me and our listeners can't. I'm speaking to you from my book bunker in the basement of my house in Barnes in southwest London. And this is the room where I have my kind of homemade studio, but I also keep all the books I've ever written or worked on, and all the different international editions. And I realised that my first book was published literally 50 years ago, half a century ago, even before I met you. And my latest book is a, a kind of childhood memoir called Odd Boy Out. And it came on me as a surprise because of lockdown last year, and I was going to be doing a show in town with Dame Judi Dench at the Bridge Theatre chatting to her about her extraordinary life. And then I was going to go on tour with my own one-man show. All of that was shelved. So I thought, I've got all this time, what am I going to do? And I'd been asked years ago to do a kind of childhood memoir, and I thought, now's the time. So I sat down and wrote it. And when I began it, I didn't know what journey I was going to take. And it's quite disconcerting to write about yourself, particularly because, as you know, you know my wife, Michelle, she said to me, oh, Giles, you got, do you really want to write another? Does anybody want to read another? Oh, for goodness sake. And she said, why are you doing this? I said, we need the money. She said, oh, yes, well, yes there is something in that. Because, you know, we've got three children, seven grandchildren, and we have discovered over the years that money is the one thing keeping us in touch with them. So I thought, there's, there's good money on offer. Get on with it. So I wrote this book, but she kept saying to me, actually, try and tell the truth. Try and actually work out. Don't just put down, you know, your favourite funny stories. Try and work out why you are, who you are. So, in fact, it's ended up really, I think, probably as a kind of book about my parents, almost a letter to my parents saying both thank you to them and in part saying sorry to them. Let's concentrate. Why, why are we meeting, uh, Biggins? You, where are you well, speaking from? I'm sp speaking from my office in Hackney, Victoria Park. Have you ever been to our house? Yes. I mean, I, I, I mean, clearly your short term memory is going. It was only last week we had supper. No, it was about, <laughs> it was actually before it was before yeah. lockdown. But we had a, a very fun supper. Yeah, I really, you're always such good company. But you were then threatening to move. You were saying this could be the last time we all meet here. Yes, we would like to move. I, I, I think age is a strange thing. I've just had a new knee put in, which has been very successful. But I, I you know, I, I now want to be on one level. Three floors is daunting. I thought you were going to say, I now want to be on one leg, having had one <laughs> knee off. Then, yeah, then we have the other leg off. And then, then if you feel your dame days are over, you can do Long John Silver at Christmas in yes, Treasure Island. perfect, perfect, perfect. <laughs> now, Charles... 
Uh, when did you, when were you conscious of meeting me? Well, I know. I was thinking about this just now and chatting to my wife, Michelle, about it and said, we must have known Biggins for more than 40 years. Biggins came to my, this is my wife speaking, my 30th birthday party. We had a dinner at the Caprice and you came to that. And that, I'm afraid, is, she doesn't look it if you look at her, but it must be more than 40 years ago. I think we met in Bristol. Or did we meet because of our mutual friend, Julian Slade. Well, it, it, both, both are possible. I was a great friend of Simon Cadell, and he went to the Bristol Old Vic Theatre School. And I was in the same year as him. As him and Tim. Yes, and, uh, of course, the real star of that year, which none of us thought for him to be a star. Uh, he was a very nice man and great fun, but he was not an actor. And he went on to win an Oscar. And who was that? Jeremy Irons. Oh, my gosh. So it was an extraordinary year. Oh, what an extraordinary year. So you, Simon Cadell, Jeremy Irons. Yeah. Well, and he won first prize in the Lottery of Life because he ended up with Sinead Cusack. Yes, and I introduced them. No, well, did you? I tell you. Yes. I made a... Well, well done there, you doing that, because I did another fatal introduction. I was at a party in Belfast chatting with George Best, okay? Famous yes. footballer. And Sinead and I went to this party and were very friendly with one another. And uh, I made the mistake of introducing her to George Best. I said, have you met this marvellous footballer? And she copped off with him. She went up and shacked up with George Best. And there I was. I took her to the party and she left it with George Best. I mean, what do you make of that? Oh, I've never forgiven wonderful. So when did you So when did you introduce them to each other? Well, what happened was when we were at drama school, uh, they, they were the romance. Jeremy uh, uh, and a girl called Julie Hallam fell in love and they got married. And I was their best man. And it was a really drama school wedding. Everybody loved each other. And uh, we had a wonderful... And I went on their honeymoon. We went in a, a, a Citroën du, du, du Chevaux, du Chevaux, down to uh, Spain, and I sat in the back with the, r the roof rolled down. And when I arrived at the other end, I was completely burnt from head to toe. And they had to look after me. I had to go to bed, and they had to put uh, creams on me and, and bring me food. I mean, I, no wonder the wedding didn't last. And so it, it, after a year, I went down to the country where they lived and separated the wedding presents. So, you know, you get someone gave you this and all this went on. And then I introduced because I worked with, fun enough, with Judy Dench in London Assurance. So when she left London Assurance, Sinead Cusack took over. And on the other side of the, uh, of the theatre, back to back, stage door to stage door, was Godspell with Jeremy Irons. And so that, when, they, when we all got together, I was you know, still a great friend of Jeremy's, and we, we, I introduced them. So those two theatres, one is the Wyndham's and the other was then the Albury. That's right. Who's now that the had previously been the new theatre? They keep changing the names. It's now the Noel Card Theatre, which is it's a good name right. for a theatre. I can't cope with the comedy theatre being called the Harold Pinter. No, I mean, no, it's ridiculous. I, I, go to it's, it's, the, I go for a good, uh, entertaining evening, and I see that even the theatre's called Harold Pinter. Already, the heart sinks, <laughs> and the show hasn't the curtain hasn't gone up. So we have. A, a rich time together in the in uh, we have a uh, so that I think it will be Bristol with my friend Simon Cadell. So that now is sixty. Is that no? It's fifty years ago. Fantastic. 
It's a golden now, age. Golden age. Now, tell me about this game that you play. The, yes, the, now, the podcast I is to... called Show and Tell, and That's I was right. a little bit nervous about what we've got to show and what we've got to tell. <laughs> no, I, you, you, I've asked you to bring along three items, and uh, you have. And I'm, I want you to give me some clues as to what your first item might be. Well, my first item is in a frame with a glass front. It's Victorian in origin, the frame, but what's within the frame goes back, oh goodness, more than 2,000 years. Oh. So what might it be? Well, it must be something to do with uh, history, obviously, because it's that old. And is it, is it a particular person? Did it belong to somebody? No, it didn't belong to somebody. I might have something that did belong to somebody a little later. This didn't. This is belong. This belongs to my family, and it's. I say it's Victorian because this was the sort of thing that Victorians did. They did it with embroidery often, but this isn't embroidery. Is it flowers? Is it dried flowers? It's words. There are words. It's ah, a framed right. set of words. In, in wonderful calligraphy. Not particularly interesting calligraphy, but it's the content of the words that's remarkable. I said more than 2,000 years old because it's from what book might you actually have read or be reading that they might even have on your bedside um, that is 2,000 years old. Not the Bible. It is the Bible. It's a quotation from the book of Proverbs. And this is the quotation. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a vagabond, and want like an armed man. And I keep this framed, words from the book of Proverbs, on the wall, in the kitchen, and I've had it all my life. And I think about it because I think it, it's why people sometimes say to me, why on earth are you still working? And I'm still working because I think it's important to work and because I don't want to have money worries. And I come from a family where my great, an interesting family on both sides, I've been discovering this while doing this childhood memoir. I already knew that my great, great grandfather was one of the, wait for it, richest people in the world, in the world, my great, great grandfather. But on the other side of my family, my great, great grandfather was a shepherd in Lancashire. And I've ended up as a middle-class person, bang in the middle, totally middle-class. I know I sound posh, but I'm actually middle, middle, middle-class. Not lower middle-class. Uh, I don't call a napkin a serviette. Um, I'm middle, <laughs> middle-class. Uh, but I'm not upper middle-class, though I sound it. I'm middle-class. But I was brought up by my father, who was a lawyer, uh, and who was the great-grandson of this man who was hugely rich. But by the time we got down to my father, all the money had disappeared. And my father had money worries all his life. And he died aged 71 for a variety of reasons, one of which was that he went to have his fortune told in Margate at Dreamland in the 1920s and was told, they read his palm and said, you'll die at 71. That was when he was only 17. But he remembered that all the time and he got to 71 and he died. But he also, I think, died at 71 because he'd reached the end of his rope and he couldn't tie a knot and he couldn't hang on. And he was bedeviled. His life was bedeviled by money worries. And I know there's nothing worse in life than... Have you ever had money worries? Yes, I have. I mean, I, 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 I had a voluntary bankruptcy 
which in a way I was badly um, advised by an accountant who wanted to make... And of course, uh, when you do... <laughs> the irony of this whole uh, bankruptcy thing, voluntary, is you have to pay a lot of money to, to, to get it, which is which I couldn't understand. I mean, I, I think I paid £10,000 to become a, a voluntary bankrupt. And I always regretted it. Uh, but I And I did pay the money back. I, I owed a lot to Coots, <laughs> which I did pay back. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it was uh, uh, an extraordinary experience. I think that we all in this business worry about money, don't we? You, you never know. We never think to yourself, oh, well, this I can relax now. I've got so much money that I, you know, I mean, I know a lot of rich people, as I'm sure you do. I know a lot of hugely rich people, as you and you definitely yes. do. And as yeah. I say, my this man, my great-great-grandfather, who's called Dr. Benjamin Brandreth, he marketed Brandreth's pills, and they were among the most successful um, medicines in the history of the world. He was a pioneer of advertising, and he sold these bills by the million. He was he went to America and made his fortune over there and became hugely wealthy. But he had a lot of children. They had a lot of children. And my great-grandfather ran the business in Britain and wasn't a very successful businessman. The, ma- the money gradually disappeared. But what is interesting about my parents, and I think, is in a way you'd think they should be comfortable because my father was a lawyer. He, it's a middle-class profession. You think of the profession's doing well. He wasn't like we are, freelance performers. And yet, because he put us through private education, because my mother always wanted holidays and always a foreign holiday, he always spent a little bit too much each year. And so I'm very conscious when I meet people who have money worries, I know there is no worry so great as a money worry. And it's one of the reasons that I work all the time. Another is that I agree with Noel Coward, who's a hero to both of us, that work is more fun than fun. That's my view on the whole. <laughs> work is more fun than fun. Absolutely true. And I also, when, when I, 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 one, one of the great influences on my life was headmaster at my first, at my prep school, a man called Mr. Stocks, who was very old. He only ever said two things to me in my t- time of knowing him. One was, keep that Latin accurate which really was a funny thing to say to me because I've, <laughs> you know, I've always thought that in loco parentis means my dad's an engine driver. Latin has never been my strong suit. But that, he said that to me, and I've remembered he said, keep that Latin accurate. He even, said, he even sent me a postcard saying, keep that Latin accurate. Once I'd left school, that's all it said. Keep that Latin accurate, signed C.L. Stocks. I've still kept the postcard. But he also said to me, the first time I met him, when I was about nine years of age, he said to me, called me Brandreth, of course, because you did, and I called him sir. He said, I said, apparently you've got something to say to me, sir. He said, I have, Brandreth. I've got this to say to you. Busy people are happy people. Be busy. Now go away. That was it. That's all he ever said to me. Busy, And I remember that. And I think it's why I am busy all the time, because I, I've got it into my head that busy people are happy people. You're a busy person most of the time, aren't you? Yeah, I am most of the time. Yes, I, I love it. I mean, I love doing all sorts of things, you know, and we're very lucky that we can do all sorts of things in our business. And I'm, I'm amazed that, you know, uh, one door closes and another door opens, you know, which is wonderful in our business. You know, suddenly you're down and out and, and you don't know what's going to happen. And then suddenly you get a job, which is a fantastic job, you know, and pays a lot of money and you're, you're out of it for another couple of years. Though my wife says to me, Charles, for you, when one door closes, it's shut. 
<laughs> she said that to me because I was a member of parliament for a while, as you may remember, in the 1990s. And when I lost my seat, uh, she said, don't go back there. You know, uh, that. <laughs> you've done that. Yeah, been there, done that. Been there, done that. Where did it come from, this 2,000-year-old from the Bible? Is it? Did you find it somewhere or did you...? Yes, I found it somewhere. And it so resonated with me because it's it's also I love the language of the King James version of the Bible. I, I love that a little, and it lulls you into thinking all's going to be well. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a vagabond, and want like an armed man. The point is, there's you don't get anything for nothing in this life. Industry and luck. You got to keep at it. Industry and luck. That's what life is about. And you and I have been blessed by being pretty lucky. And our contribution is to be industrious. And it's quite fun being industrious because it's better to... And of course, we are lucky because the work we do is interesting because it's varied. So I, when I got that, I thought this, uh, this means a lot to me. And it's a reminder. So I, I got it framed in a Victorian frame. Uh, and I... I used it really to replace two other uh, Victorian ones that my father had had and that my, he gave to my, one of my sisters. I have three sisters, the younger of whom sadly died when she was only about 60. Anyway, uh, they were two pictures. And one was of a man in his counting house and uh, he had, um, was doing his counting up and, uh, the, the, and he was looking very happy indeed. And it said, balance on the right side, happiness. And the next picture was him in the same counting house and he was clearly a penny short of the pound he needed and the legend read, balance on the wrong side, unhappiness. And I just remember my father during my childhood sitting at the kitchen table, he smoked. And he had actually smoked so much he used to hold his head in his forehead, his hand on his forehead and he had a yellow streak through his hair where the nicotine <laughs> went through his hair. Um, but he was, I mean, and he just sat there every evening after supper, he would sit in the kitchen with a cup of tea and his cigarette going through the accounts, trying to make it all add up. And he never could. Ah, oh, sweet. When did your parents die? I'm sure I met your mother. You did meet my mother. Yes, she was thrilled. Um, she was a lovely woman and she died about, it must be... Uh, eight years ago, I think. And my father died 12 years ago. Um, and Oh, so they lived to a reasonable age. They did, they did. My mother was 90-something, and my father was late 80s. And it's it's terrible, isn't it? You, When my father died, who was my first parent to die, I was doing a pantomime down in Plymouth, and uh, I knew that he was not well and dying, and my uh, brother was with him, and I couldn't be with him because I was doing two shows that day. And I remember vividly at the end of the show coming to my dressing room and going on the mobile. And there was a phone call from my brother. And I knew what it was. And I immediately rang him and he told me. And I, abs I was in full makeup as Widow Twanky. And I just cried and cried and cried and cried and cried. So much so that Abanaza came in from the next door dressing room and held me in his arms. I mean, it was, must have been the most extraordinary sight. And there was all this dame makeup running down my face. I mean, it was just awful. But my mother's was, sad because she was much older, 
Uh, it was somehow, uh, it was acceptable in a way. And also, uh, she was a very funny woman. And I told some very funny stories at the funeral. So um, it was good. It was good. Now, your second item. My Giles. second item. I'm now unveiling it. Do you ever watch Bargain Hunt? Yes. They unveil the bonus buy by removing yes. <laughs> a, a, a silk handkerchief. So I'm removing. Yes. Picture me removing a silk handkerchief from an object. Is it a box? No, not a box. You could describe it as a work of art. Okay, what kind of work of art could it be? It's about the size of the microphones we're speaking into, a bit bigger. Is it something in China? No, it's not in China. I'll tell you what it is. It's in bronze. Right, so it's a piece of sculpture then. It is a piece of sculpture. Well done, you're getting there. It's a sculpture of a person. Is it your dear wife? No, it's not my dear wife. Though you could be, you could, at a glance, think it might be my dear wife. And that gives you a clue. So is it a, is it a, a bronze of a nude? No. <laughs> <I'm, laughs> she'll be amused to know that's how you think of her when I say, <laughs> my dear wife, immediately begins to say, oh, is she in the nude? Oh, yes. No. Uh, no, 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 Mrs. No, no. It's, 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 it, uh, well, you could say, well, it's the unveiling of a bust, but not her bust. It is a bust. It's a head and shoulders. Um, so it's a head and shoulders. And it certainly appears to be a female figure, but yes. it's not a female figure. It's a, it's a man dressed as a woman. It's a bust that was done of me playing the part of Lady Bracknell in The Importance of Being a... Oh, how interesting. So it's quite, it's quite uh, new. It's relatively new. I did this a few years ago. Yes, you did, I remember. I was brought up to think uh, that um, because I was had three older sisters and I was the sort of first boy, my parents brought me up to think that I was sort of God's gift to the world. It made me think that I could do anything, uh, which, of course, we know the reality of that. Um, but uh, it's allowed me to do whatever I think is interesting to do. So somebody said to me once, well, we're doing um, uh, The Importance of Being Earnest. You're a great wild person. Would you like to be in the production? Uh, and I said, as Canon Chasuble, which is the obvious part. And my wife was listening to this and she said, no, 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 no. You can't be Canon Chasuble. Edward Petherbridge is one of my favourite actors. And he should be Canon Chasuble. And indeed, he was the definitive Canon Chasuble. So they said, well, there's only one other old part in it. I said, I'm not going to be Lane the butler. They said, no, no, we haven't yet cast Lady Bracknell. Could you do that? And I belong to the school. And I, this may be controversial. We may disagree on this. I don't know. I believe that people should be allowed to do anything. And... Um, Horses for courses. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. I went to see recently and really enjoyed Ian McKellen, aged 82, playing Hamlet. A lot of my friends wouldn't go, saying, oh, it's ridiculous. Hamlet's age 30. This is ridiculous. But I thought, well, it's a play. The play's the thing. There's a ghost in it. I don't believe in ghosts either. But why not? And so it's one of those productions where it's gender neutral, colour blind, age blind. And for me, it worked. Anyway, I played Lady Bracknell in a wonderful production of The Importance of Being Earnest with some very clever young people. And Edward Petherbridge, as I say, was immaculate as Chasuble. And it was great fun to do. And a sculptor came to this and said, would you mind if I would like to do a sculpture of you in this role? So I have a bronze of me as Lady Bracknell. 
So there, there you are. But my wife says, what am I going to do with it when you go? <laughs> because she's told me I keep everything. I keep everything. I've got a, a room full near where I'm, the next door room to where I'm speaking to you now is a room that is devoted to my, I call it my memoirs room. Wall to wall, ceiling to ceiling, boxes full of every letter, postcard, piece of paper that has touched my life over the last 60, nearly 70 years my is kept goodness. there. And Michelle has said, look, Charles, the moment you die, before I call The Undertaker, I should be calling the skip people. I've got <laughs> London skips on speed dial. They'll be coming round. They're taking out the jumpers first, then all this bump you've got next door, and I expect she'll get rid of the bronze as well. Oh, no. She can't have my sweater because you gave me a sweater and I had my photograph taken for you. Uh, but mine is a banana on the front and another one was a pineapple. And it keeps popping up on um, yes. Instagram. It does. It does. Uh, and yeah. I have to say, you haven't changed. You're a little bit slimmer. <laughs> well, yes, it's interesting. Qu- quite a bold picture because I think you're not wearing a shirt. So it's just you. I'm not. You're right. With you're the wool right. next to your yeah. skin. There's a I touch. Fabulous. I think it's a bit of an erotic <laughs> charge with, uh, with that. So oh, now, dear. it's interesting. I- I've played um, women off and on over the years in different things, but I've only once been in a sort of pantomime and that was on television. Um, and I, when I did Dame in this pantomime, I realised what a unique role it is, how difficult it is, and how it's so much not female impersonation. It is what it is. One is the Dame. Uh, and you, I, I mean, I'm so lucky in my life, I wrote a biography of Dan Leno, the great Victorian Dame, but I'm lucky enough to have grown up meeting people like Arthur Askey, Cyril Fletcher, Terry Scott, uh, great dames in their day. Stanley Baxter, one of the great Mother Gooses, in my view. And, of course, you, now the living embodiment of the dame. It is, it is difficult. It's different, isn't it? It's not female impersonation. It is something unique. How did you get into that? Well, I, I, I got into it because um, Dougie Squires was a wonderful director. And he had a Jamie Phillips was the producer. And there was a man called Peter Todd who ran Darlington Civic Theatre. And they rang and said, would I do Mother Goose in their pantomime? And I said, no, I'm sorry, you've got the wrong person here because I'm 27 years old and every dame I've ever seen is in their 80s, it seems. They were so old. I said, no, I'm far too young. And I, anyway, I'm an actor. I don't do dame. And they kept on pestering me and pestering me and pestering me. And eventually they mentioned money. Now, we're talking about 40-odd years ago, I think it was. I did my first dame. Money was mentioned. And they said, well, it's it's £1,000 a week. Well, £1,000 a week, 40-odd years ago, was a huge amount of money. I mean, I couldn't be so I did it for the money. I then fell in love with the with the product and I've loved it ever since. I mean, it's been a wonderful career for me. I mean, it's 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 marvelous. It is exhausting twice a day, 12 performances a week. It's 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 not it's not good news. When you first approached it, age 27, you had really no idea what you were going to do, did you? Just put on a costume and and and, and how did you decide to? To be Mother Goose, how did you decide what the personality of this character was? Well, I, I sort of, I suppose in those days, because I was 27, I, I looked at it intellectually and I thought this is a woman who is craves uh, money and uh, she wants to do well for her children and she comes across vanity 
and vanity wants her to become uh, beautiful and pay the price of it. And so it was down that. Uh, I remember the only thing that Dougie Squire said to me, we must give you a catchphrase. So I said, what's a catchphrase? He said, well, it's something that the audience grab hold of. So I, I said to, um, I, 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 I said, Dougie, I think I've found something. Uh, I, I used to come on, uh, every entry, I came on with a different carrier bag, you know, a Boots carrier bag, a Marks and Spencer's carrier, which the audience loved, the women especially loved. And I, at the beginning of the show, I said, now you've probably noticed I'm a little overweight. Now, the reason for this is I'm always going into my carrier bag to get a sweetie. Now, when you see me do this, I want you all to shout out, naughty, naughty which of course they did. But I didn't realise they would do it for everything. So I come up with another carrier bag, put my hand in, naughty, naughty, <laughs> cause chaos, absolute chaos. But I still, to this day, do a gag very similar to that, which is, uh, you know, I come on and I, I, I put, uh, if I play the cook, I'll put three buns on, uh, on the cross arch with icing on the top. And I'll say, now, if you see anybody go near my buns, I want you all to shout out, don't touch the buns leave the buns alone. And of course, the audience just love it. And they absolutely, word for word, all the way through, people come in and try and touch my buns. And that's the result they have. It's wonderful. I think it's the most extraordinary phenomenon, pantomime, because it is, I mean, we know its roots in Italy and France and all of that, but it's become a perfectly British I know mean, it's been done in parts of the Commonwealth, etc. But it's essentially this British phenomenon, and it's unique. It's extraordinary. And it's extraordinary, and it's and it's and if I may say so, you're still at the top of your game. We brought, as you will remember, a couple of years ago when you were in Richmond. Was it Richmond? Richmond, yes. Yeah, we brought our grandchildren to to see you, uh, and they, of course, adored you. Um, and well, so congratulations. Where are you doing it this year? I'm going to Dartford. Uh, which is just down the road in Kent. And I am doing Jack and the Beanstalk, which I'm looking forward to. Um, I just hope that we're not going to be restricted because, you know, by the kids having to wear masks, you know, and, and restrict their what they have to say, whether they can shout, whether they can sing. You know, it, it worries me slightly what we can do. This year, because, of course, last year I was going there to Dartford and I was cancelled because of uh, Covid. So, well, at least you were only cancelled because of COVID. I know other people who've been cancelled for other reasons. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, I, I performed at the Civic Darlington, but when I turned up, it was called the IVIC. The sea had fallen off. <laughs> right, Jazz, we're going to have a little break now. And uh, I, when we come back, I will tell you my um, object and that you could guess what it is. And so that's good. But it's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you very much. See you in a few minutes. Hello, and welcome back to Show and Tell uh, with Christopher Biggins. I'm with Giles Brandreth, and he's taking me through three items that tell a story from his life. But in this podcast, there's always time for something from my personal collection, too. So here are my clues. Giles, you ready to do some guessing? I'm really excited by this. I love a bit of show and tell. My show and tell is very uh, moving. Um, and also, it is, it's in a frame with a, a piece of glass on the front, as you said earlier, about one of yours. And it is uh, a picture of me... And one of the most show busy, lovely women I've ever, woman I've ever known, and extraordinary woman. Um, and we're, we're in a production, 
which we both played God. And uh, we this picture, though, is the two of us as our, as our portrayal of God. And, uh, yes, so any, any guesses there? Well, as you began saying it was very moving and she was a wonderful person, I immediately thought of our mutual friend, Linda Bellingham, who... Uh, is no longer with us and whose funeral we both attended. Uh, And I think I've got somewhere, I'm sure I've got somewhere, a picture of you and Linda, but not necessarily playing God. So who, this person is no longer alive. No, sadly. That's why it's moving. Is she, was she British? Yes. Uh, Okay. Then it's going to be Scylla Black. No. Oh, because sometimes she said... (laughs) I remember having lunch with her and Frankie Howard, uh, <laughs> and they both thought they were God. Anyway, that's a, that's a, that's a different story altogether. Um, okay, so is she? Will she have been older than Scylla? Uh, yes, I think she was older than Scylla. Yes, she was. The challenge of this, listeners, is that um, most of the people that Biggins and I know are dead now. The reason he's talking to me is I'm about the only living person he's still in touch with. Um, so this is, she's an actress, she's a singer. She's an actress, she's a singer. And you both played God in the same production. In, in the same production, but but uh, she was on one night and I was on another night. Oh! We shared, we shared the role. You shared the role of God. Yes. In nah, so this was all guest stars came in on different nights. Exactly, this is the the idea they had, and it was uh, a very. It was made into a musical, and it was a very clever musical, and uh, it was very funny indeed. It was written by um, five comics, uh, who you will know well. I'm sure they were. That's they. They, they were the. Um, not the Monty Python team. Yes. It's Monty Python's Life of Brian. No, it's Monty Python's... What, one there's a God in? One there's God in? So it's a Monty Python show. Yes. Okay. And the leading lady is no longer with us, but you love her. And did I ever meet her? Oh, yes. Lots of times. Oh. Goodness. She was uh, a, a, a breath of Cockney air. Oh, oh my goodness. Not that I meet her, but I performed with her. We were in pantomime together, believe it or not. She played the fairy queen when I was playing Baron Hardup. Bonnie, our friend, was um, Cinderella. Cinderella. Brian Connolly was Buttons. It's Barbara Windsor. Yes, it is. Oh. And I'm going to show you the picture now. Oh, just show me the picture. I'm going to burst into tears now. Oh, what a lovely person she was. She was so lovely. Bless her. Well, very gifted, remarkable human being, actually. She was a remarkable human being. And she had, uh, I mean, talk about what we talked about earlier, you know, when because she really had some bad times financially and uh, things weren't good for her. And yet she managed to come back. And as I said earlier, there's that one job that you get at, at an age where you know that's going to be you for the rest of your life and you're going to be successful financially. And, of course, that was EastEnders. But what was so brilliant about uh, Barbara was that she could. She was so varied in what she could do. I think I first saw her with Danny LaRue, believe it or not, oh, in the yes. 1960s, Come Spy With Me. Um, and she loved, she loved Dan, but she could do Shakespeare. I saw her as Mariah in Twelfth Night, Chichester. Uh, she did music hall so brilliantly. She was, in many ways, she was the modern uh, Mary Lloyd. And she did a Mary Lloyd show, didn't she? 
And then in EastEnders, she discovered what an extraordinary character actress she was. Um, not always lucky in love, except at the end of her life. I know. And Scott really was the man for her. I mean, and he was just wonderful. I mean, it still is. I mean, he is extraordinary. And he looked after her brilliantly, as a lot of ladies of that age need to be looked after. I mean, it was interesting that Scylla, uh, who you mentioned earlier, uh, was always looked after by her husband, Bobby. And he did everything for her. And that's when I worked with her first on Surprise, Surprise. And uh, she, he, she, everything was done. And when he died, she rang me very late at night, like midnight, in tears, because she didn't know what to do with the dogs. Because he'd always looked after the dogs. He'd fed the dogs. He took them out for walks. It was, everything was done. She didn't even carry money. You know, it was a, it, they were extraordinary. I mean, the, the husbands were very important. And that's why Scott was so important to her. I think that line that the Queen spoke some years ago at the time of 9-11, when she said, uh, grief is the price we pay for love. It's a, it's a terrible thing when two people have been together for a long time and are so codependent. When one goes, it's 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 a terrible payoff in a sense to a good it is. marriage. My my mother did remarkably well because she was totally dependent on my father. She literally could not change channels. She in the nineteen fifties didn't believe in having ITV. They thought that was you know, not what middle class <laughs> people did. But eventually, we had BBC One, BBC Two, ITV, uh, and she couldn't she didn't know how to change from one to the other. So my father had to get up and press the button for her. I mean, <laughs> when he died, she literally didn't know how to use the channel changer. She didn't know how to get money from the uh, cash machine. She didn't know how to do anything. Um, and he died. You know, she lived on for another twenty five years and gradually found an independent self. And, and lived, as it were, independently. But it's pretty challenging. She didn't find another man? No. And there were. she told me there were offers, and I can believe that there were offers. But I think she she found my fa- the idea of replacing my father impossible. She kept my father's picture on the bedside. And she talked to him all the time. She chatted to him. She always said goodnight to him. Um, so, no, I, I, she, she, she was keen to know that... And, and she lived... Uh, she used to say at uh, uh, the old folks' home where she ended up, she saw some of the goings-on, the clattering of Zimmer frames in the next room. Those two have got together. Oh, it's disgusting. <laughs> she was aware of something going on. She was aware that others were uh, even in there. She lived to 96, bless her. My goodness. And she was a very social animal. She had lots of friends and she was she was very good company. I think I met her, actually. Yeah, I, I know, I know you met her. I yes, know you met her. yes. She was yeah. a, a, a fan of yours. I used. To, I think I met her the last time. I think was at the Oscar Wilde party. Yes, quite possible. Yes. Are you still doing that? Yes, there'll be another one this year. You'll get your invitation in due course. Oh, good, because that's a wonderful, wonderful evening. It's just fantastic. Yeah, well, it's fantastic. We we celebrate for those who are listening and thinking, "Who are these two old darlings <laughs> chuntering on all, all our yesterdays?" Um, I am a fan. I'm, in fact, I'm the president of the Oscar Wilde Society, and every year I have a party. Uh, to mark, to remember, to to remember him, and uh, we do it uh, around the time of his birthday, or this year maybe around the time of the anniversary of his death in November. Um, and I try to invite people who represent the world today, the world he would have known. So that means, as it were, we have everybody from from royalty and duchesses through to actors like Christopher Biggins, through to politicians and ex uh, prisoners. 
Sometimes they're the same people. Uh, <laughs> all, all human life is there. It's wonderful, wonderful. Uh, did you see Rupert Everett's last film? Yes, and I loved it. Did you? I adored it. I thought it was. I thought he captured absolutely everything about Oscar Wilde. Yeah, and he was you know. he was far too old by then to be playing. He played yes. the film, which basically it's called The Happy Prince, and it's about Oscar after he leaves prison, and it's written by Rupert Everett, directed by him. He stars as um, Oscar Wilde. And though he's too old, he of all the films that have been made, and there have been some good films, this is the one that I think captures the real Oscar most perfectly. Um, it's very moving, isn't it? Oh, very moving. Giles, we're coming to your, your last final fling, your third item. What clues have you got for me? It's a letter. It's an autograph. Right. Well, I'm going to go immediately go Oscar Wilde. No. It's 20th century. Some would say it's the autograph of the greatest person of the 20th century. Oh, goodness. The greatest person of the 20th century. Is it someone... Your book, that might be Marilyn Monroe or Judy Garland. (laughs) But I'm talking about people who had an impact on the course of history in the 20th Ah, century. Churchill. It's the autograph of Winston Churchill. It's a letter from Winston Churchill signed by him. And he was the most extraordinary figure. Uh, And he, his words, his language, I mean, I believe in the power of language. And his oratory put courage into the nation. Uh, And his leadership during the Second World War Uh, can't be taken for granted. And the freedom that we now enjoy is in large part down to him and, of course, and all the people that he led. But he provided extraordinary leadership. And one of the games that I enjoy playing in life is I I, I love meeting famous people. We're both, you and I, attracted by the glamour of fame. I'm attracted by meeting people who have achieved something, who are remarkable, who are unique. Sometimes they're they're famous, like Usain Bolt. Sometimes they're not famous, but even more remarkable, like Usain Bolt's auntie. I was in Jamaica <laughs> and I went into a shop and I met this lady and, I, and we got chatting. And um, I saw that she had sporting memorabilia on sale in the shop, including sort of Usain Bolt. And I said, um, well, why have you got this? She said, because I'm Usain Bolt's auntie. And she said, and I can run faster than him. <laughs> uh, and I believed it. So I have met Usain Bolt's auntie who can run faster than him. But I love collecting <laughs> famous people. And I love having handshakes at one remove. When I was researching my childhood memoir, uh, Odd Boy Out, I, I was looking up some photographs. And I came across a photograph of me meeting a man who I remembered in the 1920s. He'd shown me a photograph of himself in the 1920s when he was a boy, shaking hands with Stalin. So I, at one remove, have shaken hands with Stalin. (laughs) At one remove, I've shaken hands with Oscar Wilde as well, because the founder of the school I went to, Bedell's, knew Oscar Wilde. So, uh, you know, I've shaken the hand that shook the hand uh, that mm, wrote the importance of being earnest. I also was a friend of Christopher Robin Milne. And I know you appeared as Winnie the Pooh. And I'm, did you ever meet Christopher Robin? I never did. No, I met Christopher Robin, a lovely man. 
He was a retired bookseller in his 60s by the time I met him, but we became quite good friends, so I liked him very much. But I loved being able to shake his hand and say, you know, I'm now shaking the hand that held the paw of Winnie the Pooh. That's quite fantastic. <laughs> and I, I got to know Mary Soames, the youngest daughter of Winston Churchill. And she told me a couple of amusing things about Churchill, one of which was that when they went to the theatre together, he always bought three tickets. I said it was very extravagant. He said, yes, he got three tickets, one for himself, one for me, his daughter, and one for his coat and hat. <laughs> it's rather a nice way to do it. And she said, I've heard you say that you like to shake hands with great people at one remove. And I said, well, I do. I said, I'm, I'm, I've been lucky enough to shake the hands of every British Prime Minister, for example, since Winston Churchill. And she said, well, come here. And she'd come upstairs. And I went upstairs and she said, look at this. And she said, you can shake hands with this. And it was a cast of Winston Churchill's hand. And it was very small and very delicate. And she held it and she said, look, you can now say you've shaken hands with Winston Churchill. Fantastic. Fantastic. Giles, thank you so much. It's been absolutely fascinating. I mean, the Bible uh, is, the, the inscription from the Bible is just wonderful. I think the, uh, the fact you've got a, a bronze of your wonderful performance as Lady Bracknell is fantastic, and and also the picture of Churchill. You know, I mean, it's it's wonderful, very very good. Some really good objects, especially a man like you, which has. I now we all know you have not only the room you're in, but the room next door full of things you could have used and shown us. So thank you so much. Well, thank you so much, and I've got a little poem to recite to you. It's my favourite four lines by Hilaire Belloc. And I first learnt these at school, and it feels very apt after our happy conversation today. Four lines by Hilaire Belloc. From quiet homes and first beginning, out to the undiscovered ends, there's nothing worth the wear of winning but laughter and the love of friends. Oh. So, Biggins, thank you for the laughter we've had and for our friendship. Absolutely. And I, 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 I couldn't agree more. Thank you, Giles. Lovely. We'll talk again in another 60 years. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Show and Tell podcast. If you want to hear more conversations like this one, make sure you follow Show and Tell with Biggins on the podcast provider of your choice. And if you'd be so kind as to tell your friends about the podcast, I'd be ever so grateful. You can also follow us on social media. We're at Biggins Podcast. Goodbye. Goodbye.